Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Now, today we are going to talk about a topic that I have wanted to discuss ever since the first time I saw the title of this book. A while back, I had Diane Dreyer on the show with me, and she came on the show, but at that time, I said, you know what? I'm going to have her back, and when I do, we're going to talk about a book that she has that's titled your personal renaissance 12 powerful practices for finding your life's calling i mean absolutely any time is a great time to talk about finding your life's calling but it's always a good time to just kind of take a look at things and and see if there's a way that you know maybe maybe you could be a little happier or maybe it's time to reevaluate and just see what you can do and and see if See if you're doing what you should be with your life. So, Diane, I'm just, I cannot wait to get into this topic with you. Great. (laughs) I feel the same way. Like I said, the first time I looked through your list of books, I'm like, I love this topic. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I'm just, I'm really happy to have you back. So, what what prompted you to write this book? Oh, (laughs) Well, I teach at Santa Clara University, and uh, years ago I was teaching this class about uh, literature. We were looking at a poem by John Milton who was talking about trying to find his calling. So I asked my students, well, how would you, how would you discuss your calling today? How would you describe it? And they looked at me with just blank stares. And I said, well, what do you want to do with your life? And they said, uh, well, and I said, why are you going to college? And they, they, they finally said, well, so I can have money to buy a new car or uh, so I can live as well as my parents or whatever. And I said, don't you have you know, a deeper meaning for what you do than just paying the bills? And uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I really need to get a sense that, of course, we need to pay the bills. Uh, of course, we need to eat and, you know, um, exercise and sleep and take care of our physical needs. But we have a lot more metaphysical, emotional, spiritual, whatever. Uh, Maslow called them self-actualizing needs. We need to feel like we're doing something that makes sense to us, that's meaningful. It gives us a sense of joy. So I decided I needed to write this book. Well, you know, it's, it's life is so much more fulfilling when you feel like, you're you're accomplishing something and you have a purpose. I mean, I know this yeah. sounds kind of corny to some people, but those are the people that need a purpose more than anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. There are lots of studies that have come out lately that really show that we've got something like a crisis of meaning and purpose in, in our country. Totally. A thir- yeah, a 30% rise in depression uh, and then 28% rise in suicides here in, in the United States since the 1990s. And right. uh, 
Wow. According to Gallup Research, 85% of people, workers worldwide, are disengaged or not actively engaged in their work. So they just do it to pay the bills. They don't do it for any, they don't find any meaning there. And that's really sad because most people spend most of their working hours, uh, their waking hours at work. And if they're spending all this time doing something that doesn't mean anything to them, they're not going to be very happy. Right. Well, that's kind of like the, you know, the whole working for the weekend mentality. You know, you work Mm -hmm. all week, you get to the weekend to party, and then Monday morning you start all over again. And you're not really doing anything with your life. That's like we were talking to about having the the mentality that you don't really want to learn and grow and, and and learn new things. I, I can't even imagine. I know I know a lot of people like that. And I, I just I can't even wrap my mind around not wanting to learn new things. I, I, I want I, I honest I joke that I want to learn too much and I need to kinda like suppress that sometimes <laughs> to make it manageable. Yeah, but it sounds like, you know, according to research, and we can talk about that later, um, we all have certain strengths, you know, certain qualities that uh, can be measured, uh, and that some of us really have a, a real zest for learning. You know, right. Some of us have really strong sense of wanting to help other people. Uh, right. Some people love nature. Some people love animals. Some people love to dance, uh, to move, to create art. Uh, we, ha- you know, we human beings have a vast variety of potentials that we individually don't realize. And right. yet when we do connect with something that we deeply love to do, we feel totally energized. And totally. our immune systems work better. <laughs> we stay right. healthier. Exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because when I was in in school, in, in a, even elementary school, I always wanted to be a teacher. That was that was my big thing I wanted to do. I was well, I, I had a teacher in second grade that I absolutely loved, and I just I just connected with her immediately, and it was really cool because in seventh grade she she actually moved to to be a seventh grade teacher by the time I got there, so I got to have her as as my teacher again. And then when my first book was published, I tracked her down so I could call and tell her the day that they were delivered, you know, that I was published. And um, and then and it was really cool because when I found her, I mean, when I told her that they had just come in, I was I was actually holding my first published book in my hand, and, and her first words to me were, I, I knew you would do it. I didn't know when, but I knew you would. You know, so it, it just, she's been an inspiration to me for decades. So it's just, I, I always wanted to be a teacher in some way. And and so being a coach and through my writing and, and this sort of thing, I've I've kind of gotten a chance to do that, not in the traditional way I thought I would, you know, but but the internet and, and radio and that sort of thing has given me an opportunity to do that in other ways, you know, and and through the the Love Yourself program that I've developed and, and other sorts of things. You know, so it's it's interesting how what we what we may have seen ourselves doing at, say, 7, 8, 9, or 10 years old, how that can change through technology and our creativity and that sort of thing over the years. So our quote-unquote calling can manifest itself in different ways as we kind of, you know, research and and get more out of the box over the years. Yeah, and... 
a couple of things. Your teacher <laughs> must have found her calling and, you know, just absolutely projected her love of learning. And oh, yeah. you caught it, you know, and connected with you. And the fact that she was, what, first grade teacher and then she became a seventh grade teacher, she yep. was committed to her own learning and growth. Right, right. <laughs> a great example. Um, I think that what I totally agree with what you say because I'm also a writer and I write blogs now and when I was in school I had no idea that I was going to be writing blog posts because they didn't have them then. Right. Uh, (laughs) Although underneath it all, you and I are still using some of the same strengths that we discovered in childhood, love of learning. We're just finding different ways to uh, to to manifest those those strengths. Exactly. Because, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and even even like with my writing style, it's very much a speaking to the person and instructing them in a lot of cases. You know, because mm-hmm. a lot of my things are, are done in a handbook and workbook kind of style, so it's instructional. You know, so it's it's interesting how these things manifest. So, like I said, it may not be the way we originally envisioned them. I like things that we do that get out of the box. So it's, you know, just kind of open your mind and and just kind of, I, I like the free flow of, of ideas and, and like I said, just, just kind of open your mind. You just never know what you might find, you know. <laughs> and sometimes it really does help for people to, uh, to go back and think about, especially if they're feeling, I don't know, just blah, right? Right. Uh, right. What did I really love to do when I was a child? Right. And um, well, right. my husband used to, he grew up in Brooklyn in the housing projects, but what he loved were was nature, and uh, he also loved to go watch the horses around Central Park. So now, now he has a horse. He's in fact he's out with his horse right now. He's also <laughs> a psychology professor. So. Uh, for his day job, but the fact is he's managed to find a way to, you know, to bring his love of nature and horses into his daily life, and it makes him happy. You know, we don't have to find our calling necessarily in the work we do, although that's that's really convenient. Sometimes people find it in in their hobbies, their avocations, you know, uh, the things they do for their own pleasure, But, but we need to find something that lights up our lives. Right. Well, and, and you never know. He might decide he wants to blog about horses in the evening. You know, I mean, you know. That, that could be. And there are people that do therapy with horses. Mm-hmm. Equine therapy, they call it. So That's maybe he can combine these things. <laughs> I don't know. You know, again, it takes ingenuity, but we need to kind of, first of all, I think, go within and say, what do I really love to do? Right. You know, uh, and that's part of loving ourselves and loving our own possibilities. Yes. Well, in realizing we have possibilities and then starting to dig. And the thing is, you've got to love yourself enough to put the effort into doing this. It's got to be the first step, right? You bet. And a lot of people are too busy. You, I'm sure you've noticed this in your programs. Uh, they're too busy pleasing others and living a life of shoulds. Right, right. So, or else they're too busy and they just fill up their calendars with all kinds of things that they have to do. Uh, and they're exhausted at the end of the day and they've done a lot of things, but 
they aren't very energized because a lot of these things are just chores. Right. So we schedule ourselves for how and when, but often we don't stop and ask ourselves, why am I doing these things? <laughs> do I really care about them? Um, do I love, do these things energize me? Do these activities, do these relationships really bring me joy, energy, meaning? And if right. not, maybe we need to do something different. So what, what for, for the listeners, what is a life of should? What is a life of should? Okay. Yes. Um, it's letting other people determine what's important for us and tell us, oh, you should, a lot of my students have their parents tell them, you should major in accounting so that you can get a good job. And the student maybe wants to be an artist or a writer or something else. But, but being dominated by other people's shoulds makes us into a, a kind of a robot. We aren't listening to our hearts. Some people tell us, you know, especially in family situations, oh, you should enjoy this whatever family gathering, uh, and maybe they don't, you know, or you should, you should uh, say thank you for a gift and, and wear it even though it's a color you detest. Right. Uh, it's going against the grain of who we are, and there, there are little shoulds and, and big shoulds, but I think the uh, uh, one story that I find amazing is uh, Paulo Coelho, who wrote The Alchemist, He's, uh, you know, Brazilian writer of bestsellers. When he was growing up, his parents told him, you should become a lawyer. And he said, I want to be a writer. And they said, no, 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 you can never make a success as a writer. You should be a lawyer. And when he protested, they had him locked up in a mental institution and subjected to electrical shock therapy uh, to try to shock him into being the person that they wanted him to be. Uh, he finally relented uh, and was released, went to law school, hated it, dropped out, started traveling around the world, wrote The Alchemist, which became a bestseller. They were trying to impose their idea of what, what he needed to be, and he was trying to live from his heart. And uh, I'm grateful that he did because The Alchemist is a very interesting book, and it's inspired a lot of my students. <laughs> well, you know, in- interesting story. I-, I wanted to be a writer from about second grade, <clears throat> same-, same teacher. And... Um, my, I, I was not encouraged by any of my family members to be a writer for, for some of the same reasons. Couldn't, couldn't be a writer, not, not a good idea. Of course not, don't do that. And um, they actually didn't get on board with that until after I was published and all their friends were fascinated that I was a writer. Once their friends were, <laughs> then they were excited. They're like, oh, now okay, maybe there's something to this. So, so 35 books published later, now they're excited about the fact that I'm a writer. But they're excited about it now, <laughs> you know, so. Well, yeah, and, it, well, it's interesting. Their friends, you know, uh, were saying, oh, you should be so proud of your daughter. And exactly. At that point, well, <laughs> well and, and when, I, when I was doing local events and doing authors, you know, book signings and, and you know, when I was on book TV, you know, oh, then yeah. they were Excited, you know, and they were in the audience. Oh, where the where the, where the parents, you know. So, my brother still doesn't get it, but but at least at least mom and dad were enjoying it. Well, and the yeah. thing is too, 
if you want to be an if you want to be a writer, people immediately think you want to write the great American novel. Which I mean, the chance of making a fortune with that? Okay, come on, let's be honest. That's kind of slim to none. Okay, mm-hmm. but. There now in this day and time, there's a whole lot of ways you can get into writing and make money. So, you know that that's not that's not as difficult now as it used to be. Because I mean, I, I was a freelance writer for years and made a living at it. So there's ways to to get into writing now if you're willing to be flexible with how you get into it. So, you know, there yeah. there are different ways to do that now. So it's it's the same kind of thing if. If you have this calling, right, uh, if you have this love of writing, there are lots of different ways to express that, to channel right. that. And like I said, you've got to be flexible. Not just, be flexible. Yeah, not just got to write a novel. I mean, right. that would be a pretty limited way to do it. But, but right. our culture doesn't really, doesn't really give people those cues very often. I'm glad you right. do. Well, that's what, well I, was, I was actually just talking to somebody earlier today who, who says, oh, I wish I could be a professional writer. And I said, well, no, let me just kind of give you a little bit of insight into that. <laughs> you know, what, what that means, it's not all glamour, by far. Yeah. Well, and, and I told him, I said, I said, when I first started doing it, now, because I, I was a freelance writer for three or four years, and that's what I did full time, I said, but, but what that entailed was I was given like a one-page description of a book, and I had to start to finish, I had to finish a book in three months. And this is somebody who's been working on one book for like 20 years. I said, so Whoa. just to give you an idea... <laughs> oh, yeah. so. uh, it can be challenging and I think yeah. there are a lot of people that you know maybe they watched a lot of um, I don't know fairy tale movies when they were growing up or something right. they think that I'm just going to sit down and I will magically write this novel which right. will then become successful and I'll live happily ever after and you know Jiminy Cricket is going to help me and you know whatever uh, it's or I'll get a fancy check and I'll I'll, yeah. I'll just take my time and spend the next five years writing this book, and I'll get a great big check for you know. When, and that's not how this works. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Uh, it's not magic. It's, no. it's reality. I mean, the magic is, I think, if there is magic involved, is is feel, feeling energized and inspired and filled right. with joy with what we're doing. Got to put the action into it. Right. <laughs> Moving forward. Well, and, and that's the whole bottom line. That's what happens. That magic and the inspiration and the that energizing is what happens when you figure out your calling. When you figure out what motivates you and what you're passionate about, that's mm-hmm. all those things happen for you. I mean, I, yeah. it, like I said, it's going to sound corny to people that haven't found it yet, but it happens. It really does. So it what? Really what, does. what is a personal renaissance for people that okay. don't understand it? What is it? Okay, a personal renaissance is a time when we look at our lives and we declare our independence. We're coming up to the 4th of July uh, fairly you know, soon, obviously. Uh, we declare our independence from shoulds and decide that we're in charge of our lives, our time, and our choices. And according to a lot of research in positive psychology, realizing that we have a choice is vital to our health and tremendously empowering. So... Yes. You know, instead of saying, okay, I've got to do all these things, people that may have these expectations of me, to really stop and say, what really inspires and energizes me? And I'm going to do that. I'm going to follow that, that, that path and find what really makes my life worthwhile. 
And it's going to be a journey of discovery and uh, excitement, some challenges, but uh, people are going to live with a lot more vitality and uh, a lot a lot greater uh, sense of energy and, and even uh, stronger immune systems when they do that. Okay. Now, people are going to get mad at me about this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Is this something that we can have somebody else do for us, or do we have to do it ourselves? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what a great question. No one can find our calling for us. It's, it, it's a spiritual exercise. It's like set, hiring somebody to go to the gym and lift weights for me. It does not make my muscles stronger. <laughs> it, it helps the person. It requires, it's, it's, a, it's a commitment. And it's a commitment to living in uncertainty and to exploring and discovering and following that, that light of uh, what brings us joy and meaning. So no but, one else can do that for us. Although I have a lot of students whose parents think they can do that for their sons and daughters. That is not the case. But you see why I prefaced it that way, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Paolo Coelho's parents thought they were doing a good thing to him, too. (laughs) I mean, my gosh. Uh, You know, lock him up if he doesn't want to do what he should do. Yeah, sure. No one can find our calling. It's, It's a discovery of our own unique gifts. Well, and, and like you're saying, somebody else can try to find it for you, but the thing is, it's it, it's very personal. We have to find it, and like like the title says, your personal renaissance. We have to put forth the effort to find it for ourselves, and and honestly, it's it's like I've already said, we have to care enough about ourselves to put the effort in to find it for ourselves. We we've got to care. Yeah, yeah, it it is absolutely a demonstration of self-care and of the fact that we believe our lives have value, not not value that other people you know put upon us or externals, but we have an intrinsic value. Uh, in the Renaissance, <laughs> the Renaissance historically, back when Shakespeare lived, uh, right. incidentally, as Shakespeare's father was a love maker and his parents were both uh, illiterate. They signed their names with an X. Shakespeare obviously had a different path. <laughs> yeah, uh, he discovered his gifts and uh, shared them with the world. But yeah, no, uh, yeah. back then, back then, uh, a personal renaissance, a, a sense of calling was, was part of our personal identity. Just like, you know, if you have blue eyes or brown eyes, uh, you're this tall or, you know, whatever, uh, your hair color, your, your identity was also your, your calling. Uh, right. And, and when people grew up, they were supposed to discover their gifts. They believed that God gave everybody a certain number of gifts, and it was our duty and our destiny to develop them and share them with the world. Uh, and not everybody had parents that supported them even then. Michelangelo's uh, father wanted him to be a cloth maker and mm. would beat him whenever he found his son drawing because he thought that was a waste of his time. And right. fortunately for, for the artistic world, Michelangelo prevailed because he had such a strong sense of who he was. You right. know, I, I feel called to do this. I, I have to do this. This is who I am. So, yeah, our calling is, is part of our identity, and no one can declare that for us. There are times, there's, uh, actually there's too many times, where the people closest to us 
may not recognize and appreciate what we know in our heart is our calling. Because I, what, what I'm doing with this show and with a lot of my writing, I feel is my calling, and I, it, I, I can't not do it. But a lot of my family don't get it and actually resent it, but I, just, I don't care. I just, it, yeah. that's, that's their problem as far as I'm concerned. It's something I have to do. I have to do it for me because of what I learned and how much I've grown with this show and with what I can share with other people through the show. And it's like they, they don't get it, and that's just going to have to be their problem. They, they can either deal with it or they cannot, and I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, it's just, I mean, I'm not, cons- I'm not comparing myself to Michelangelo by any chance, but, you know, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm just, I'm just sharing that with the listeners because, you know, if, if you do the work and you find something you feel is your calling and the people closest to your, you in your life don't get it, that's their problem. Pursue it if that's what you – if you're passionate about it and you get fulfillment from it and it energizes you, you know, go go with it. You know, do what you need to do as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Now, if it hurts somebody, yeah. that's a whole other ballgame. Well, no, exactly. I mean, we're, we're not talking, you know, if people get a sense of uh, passion and fulfillment from uh, committing crimes, that's probably – Well, yeah, that's not different. <laughs> that's and, different. And way back in the Renaissance, that was not a legitimate calling. This was – they right. had they, take the first steps to find their calling. So I think sometimes our calling finds us, which is kind of what happened with me with this. Okay. Well, um, let me go through like step one and then I have, I have a question for you. Uh-oh. Uh, I've, I've worked out <laughs> this, this calling protocol with my uh, colleague Tom Plant, who's a health psychologist. And he uses this in clinical practice to help people who are suffering from depression, anxiety, chronic stress, low self-worth. And the, the protocol has four Ds, which are described in my book, discovery, detachment, discernment, and direction. The first okay. like D is discovery. Okay. It's just discovering our strengths. Uh, it's, it's recognizing what we love to do, what brings us joy and energy. Okay. And Anybody can kind of do that. You know, you, you, you are doing something and you feel energized afterwards. That's a good sign. Yeah, definitely. Something else and it's a big drain and, and, you, and, and instead of feeling a sense of accomplishment and energy, all you feel is relief, like, oh, I'm glad that's over. That's obviously not your calling. Well, you know, and we need to be aware. I, I, I mentioned on here a lot of being aware of ourselves, and, and, and I talk about that with our partners, too. You know, be aware of your partner and how they're reacting to things around them, too. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, uh, there's also something called strength spotting that we can help each other discover our, our strengths. Right. That, That's know, cool. I like no, that. Notice when somebody does something really well and seems to be, you know, energized, you can say, wow, you have a real strength for public speaking, for example, or, you know, and the person will say, oh, yeah, or you're, you know, you're really good at reaching out and helping others. And the person, you know, because it helps to have people who mirror back to us who we really are. 
Right. Well, sometimes we're going to notice a strength in a person they may not notice in themselves. So it's very helpful Mm -hmm. when we can do that for each other. Yeah, because a lot of times we we can't see ourselves, actually, unless we look in a mirror, uh, unless we have a reflection back to us. And sometimes the things we do well are so obvious to us that we figure, oh, that's nothing. That's so easy, you know. Right, right. (laughs) It comes naturally to me, so it's no big deal. Well, according to some of our friends, it may indeed be a big deal. Right, right. Very true. Yeah, so my question for you is, how did you discover yours? I think, well, with this whole whole coaching thing and with, with all that, I think it was, because I, I saw such a change in myself, I saw such a ch- such a positive change in myself, and it was it was, and actually my mother pointed it out to me, so that you know with other people being aware of, ah. of changing ourselves, so she she saw such a positive change in me, and she didn't know what was going on or why it was such a change, but but she saw that, and then that triggered me, and I started paying closer attention, and so. So actually, it was it was my mom. Oh, that's wonderful! So she she actually helped with strength spotting. She exactly. Felt she was yep. a mirror. We need to do that for each other a lot more. You know, that would be a wonderful public service, and it doesn't cost <laughs> anything to just recognize when somebody is you know really doing something that has a positive effect on them and others to just point it out. We get yeah. enough bad news lately, you know. Uh, exactly. We need good news. <laughs> exactly. We need positivity. So um, the first step in finding a calling then is discovery and how other people can help us and how we can we can recognize what we love to do as children, uh, who we admire. Sometimes that's a key, and uh, what we love to do, what makes us feel happy and energized. Then the second D is detachment uh, because we need to have time to do what we value and what is meaningful. And a lot of us are, uh, have our lives filled with distractions and external demands that take us away from these things. No doubt. So, yeah, um, to, to recognize distractions, recognize what drains us, and whenever possible, cut down or eliminate those things to make space for the things that do matter. Right. In addition, um, again, we have a very, very busy culture. Uh, some people schedule a weekly Sabbath when they unplug and reflect and don't always turn on the news and turn on their phones and you know tablets and whatever. Uh, some people have... Uh, uh, contemplative practice. They meditate on a regular basis. And another thing that we can do, which is a real challenge in our world, is to stop rushing. Right. Very true. Because when we rush around, it sends a message to our brains that we're stressed and we get into the fight or flight and our whole attention narrows we can't think creatively when we're when we're running around in a big hurry and we don't notice things we just right. you know we just get fixated on on getting whatever it is done or you know making it across town in traffic or something like that and and actually stress shuts down our immune systems and messes with our digestive systems so 
you know, it, it takes, especially since our whole world is moving so fast, it takes real uh, discipline to just take a deep breath and slow down and be present. But when we are present, we get a lot more uh, insight into our callings and into our lives. You know, it's interesting you say that about we, about not being creative when we're, ru- when we're rushing. I get my, my best creative ideas when I'm on the road, just on the interstate, just wide open spaces, windows down, just just on the road. <laughs> That's beautiful because you're you're in the zone and you're doing something that doesn't tax your brain. So yeah. that you have op- open space to really, you know, to to think creatively. Yeah. I do that too. And I was driving to school one day and got this idea for a poem, and I actually had to pull off to the side of the road and write it down. <laughs> so I really we, you know what I do? I, I use the record feature on my phone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, that was before I had one of these phones. But, yes, you know, a lot of people get uh, inspired ideas when they're in that state. Uh, yeah. Einstein used to get a lot of his insights when he was out sailing. Yeah. He kept a little notebook in his pocket so he could write right. down his brilliant ideas and then go back. That's part of the creative process, actually. Is that it's called incubation. There's uh, there are four stages. Uh, I used to I used to when I when I used yeah. to go tanning in the tanning beds. I'd just uh-huh. I'd relax in the heat in the tanning, and it was so funny because I'd always I finally got got smart and I'd take like a, a notepad with me into the tanning beds. She always laughed when I did. But I, I used to come running out of there, piece of paper and a pen, because I'd always have an idea, and I'd like come to the front, and I knew the people that owned the place, thank goodness. But um, I'd always have to jot something down real quick, because I'd have like a new title for something I was working on or something, and she'd just laugh at me every time. Yeah, that's it. But yeah, after 20 minutes in there with the, with the warmth, and the and she always played music, you know, and beach sounds that I just loved, and by the time I came out, I just had a rush of ideas. But yeah, See, that, that, was a, that was a contemplative space. I mean, you were lying there. You mm-hmm. didn't have to do anything. So your mind was at rest to be able to explore and to put things together in new and creative ways. A lot of, a lot of people don't give themselves time for that, you know, whether it's a tanning bed or a, a sauna or meditation mm-hmm. or swimming or something, you know, driving uh, on a long stretch of highway. So they, they, they work real hard. Stage one of the creative process is preparation. And then if they don't have that second stage, which is incubation, then they don't get the inspiration to take it to the higher level. Right. So they, they just get stuck doing the same status quo because they can't see any new insights because they're too darn busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when, when I was going through my coaching training, and, and like I said, I started noticing and feeling changes and feeling better and, and you know, all this, this positive stuff was going on. I was, I was working 60 to 80 hours a week while I was going through the training. You know, so, I mean, I, it, it's not like I had nothing else to do. So, I, I mean, I was making the time. You know, so I, I have all these people go, well, I'm too busy and there's too much going on. And I'm like, don't give me that. You know, if, if you want something bad enough, you make the time. I mean, if, if you want it, you can make it happen. It just you, You've got to put the effort into making the time. Because, I mean, that. trying to find time to study when you're working 80 hours a week is not the easiest thing in the world. You know? But yes. I still finished it in under a year. It, so. It's a commitment. You're absolutely right. It takes effort. 
And yeah. people will make a lot of excuses. I'm too busy right now. Yeah. Well, okay. well, people are always busy, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really not a good excuse. If you really care about yourself, your life, and, and want to flourish, then you've got to make the time. You know, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to make the commitment to yourself. Yeah. I'm worth it. You know, this is what I choose to do, and I'm going to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I finished. There's 33 courses that I finished in that year's time, like I said, plus working about 80 hours a week. So, yeah, wow. it, was, it was a huge commitment, but I was yeah. determined to do it. So. Determination. Yeah. That could be another one of the Ds. Yeah. We need there to you go. I'll give you another D. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, my next one. Um, okay. After detachment is, is you know, involves determination. We've got to detach from the excuses that we make or from some of the, the things that are not important to us in order to really do what is. Yes. A lot of busy stuff that we do in our lives that, you know, if you really get down to the nitty-gritty, you, you can kind of, I don't know, you, you can make changes if you really want to. And it, actually making changes doesn't have to be a huge leap from, you know, nothing to all. It's not right. an all or nothing, zero-sum game. People who run marathons don't just get up one morning and say, I'm going to run 26 miles. They exactly. work up to it. They train. Right. I used to fly airplanes. When, when you are in a direction and you want to make a little change, I'm going, uh, yeah, uh, that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, west, northwest, and, mm-hmm. I, and I, I make just a little change uh, in my, you know, heading, like five right. degrees or something. Over time, I'd end up in New York. <laughs> like, right. You know, because, you know, because it, it, over time, a small, one small step over time multiplies. It's exactly. Like, yeah, and so that if all we have to do is, okay, Discover really what, what, what our passion is. Detach from things that, that don't matter. Just detach from one little thing and you'll free up a little space. One well, and step. with a plane, too, if you make a major, major change in your heading, it's catastrophic, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, well, and what happens with a plane is, you know, you have to, you have to make these gentle maneuvers right. <laughs> because otherwise you, the plane... You can you can tip the thing and go into a nosedive, which is exactly. not, not uh, optimal. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. yeah, I mean, well, I mean, any kind of change that you know, be reasonable about it. You know, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to be all or nothing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a person you know who wants to lose weight, uh, you don't stop eating completely. I mean, that right. you know, <laughs> you got you, we, we must feed ourselves. But, the, right. you know, they're just little changes that incrementally over time. So right. part of that detachment, and the next step would be discernment, is to uh, listen to our hearts, discover our values, and, and find a, our path. And to start looking at it, the fourth step would be direction, which is looking at little steps that we can take progressively that are going to get us there. So, for example, you took 33 courses in one year. Right. But you didn't take them all at the same time. You know? Right. Right. You had to sign up for one or two or three courses and take those, and then you took the next set 
and then on so that it's a progressive journey. And what happens with the journey, I'm wondering if it happened with you, is that the more you get, the the further you get on the journey, the more you you develop momentum, a positive momentum that carries you forward. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and you, you get to a point, and, and I, I, just, I couldn't stop. I had to finish, yeah. you know? Yeah, right. Because, you know, it's, it's almost like one of those laws of thermodynamics. A body in motion tends to remain in motion, and a body at rest tends to remain at rest. So right. that once you, you take a step, the first step need, leads to the next step, and then the next one. And then you develop this incredible positive momentum and are energized, and you just go for it. And that's... Right. You know, that's direction. But again, it starts with small steps. Right. Uh, the Tao Te Ching, which I've written about in other books, says the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, you know. Yeah, there it, it is. Yeah. you got to take and the first step, though. And the first step is, like, actually, we need to celebrate taking the first step because that's, that's a courageous thing to do. It is. Step out in a new direction especially if people who love us or, you know, want to protect us from failure and say, oh, dear, don't do that, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Sometimes the people who want to protect us are are actually the biggest roadblocks on the path of uh, progress. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the things I say in my my, um, Learn to Love, Accept, and Respect Yourself program is, you know, sometimes the, well, sometimes the people closest to you are afraid of seeing you make changes. They uh, the way you are. I, okay, so one reason is that they they really care about you and they don't want to see you fall on your face and fail. But there are uh-huh. other reasons too, right? Right. Like a person can be uh, well threatened, you know, right. by a change in someone they love because it upsets the whole system that they're part of. Exactly. I, yeah, I had a friend who uh, was, gosh, she was 60 years old, and she decided that, you know, she had stopped working. Her husband was, was retiring as a, a realtor, and she wanted to go to, back to school and study for the ministry and, you know, started a personal renaissance. And, of course, they had a traditional marriage, uh, it was years ago, and she had done all the cooking. So she had all-day Saturday classes that went until 6 p.m. And uh, her husband said, well, you know, why don't I take you out to dinner? Because, you know, you won't really have time to make dinner when you get home because it will be too late. So they did that a couple times. And then he said, well, why don't I make dinner? And fast forward, uh, by about, you know, two months into the course, he realized he loved cooking. He became a gourmet cook. He'd go to these stores, buy all these exotic things, try new cookbooks and recipes, and he was having the time of his life. And he ended up having a personal renaissance in response to hers. <laughs> so they both, it was a win-win. You know, yes, it threatened him. Yes, it unsettled his, his uh, status quo world. But uh, they both enjoyed it. And, and he was really a good cook. I used to like to go to dinner over there. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> See, getting shook up can be a good thing. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, that's a lot of times we resist change, you know, for ourselves and for the people in our lives because we, you know, it's the unknown. And uh, fear of the unknown is a pretty primal fear. 
but change can be for the better. It doesn't have to destroy us when you're creative. But that's the thing. If, if somebody close to you starts to make changes in, in their life, that makes an unknown in your life. It's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, exactly. And what am I going to do about that? And a lot of times people get into denial, like, oh, this can't be happening, or they try to push back and say, don't do that. That's right. Um, You're going to ruin our marriage uh, or whatever. Um, I had sometimes even our best friends are threatened by positive changes in our lives. Yep, sure are. I mean, I I moved up to San, San Francisco Bay Area from L.A. I went to UCLA in graduate school, and my friends who were still in grad school down there were in Los Angeles. I got a grant to go down to do research at one of the research libraries. And the grant, you know, I, I had to, I flew down there, I rented this car, and uh, I wanted to get a compact car, but they didn't have any, so I got this big muscle car <laughs> at the same price. I thought, oh, this is fun. Drove it over to meet my friends, and I had, you know, my professor clothes on, uh, a suit, and they, they looked at me, and they gave me these dirty looks and said, well, you've changed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same person, but now I have a job. <laughs> uh, they didn't like it because somehow they were still grad students and I was not anymore and I was in a different space and it, it bothered them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. People, people just don't handle it. It's a shame. Well, that's just like, it was, it's so funny. I was, um, I, was, I was talking to an old boyfriend one day and we were talking. He's like, so how are you doing? You know, and, and so, and I had, uh, things were going really good, and I made the mistake of saying how good things were going. And I mean, he really was ticked off that things were going good. I said, "Can't be happy for me." And he was so mad that that things were going good, and he wasn't involved in any way. I'm like, you know, I would be happy for you if things were going good for you. Obviously, things weren't. You know, but oh, yeah, you know, yeah, well. There's, there's a certain amount of ego going on on his part there. Evidently, evidently. So, yeah, things weren't going good for him, and things were going really good for me and for his ex-wife at the same time, and that was just that was a double whammy he couldn't take. So. Oh yeah, but, uh, yeah. It's a certain certain male ego. I took a class with uh, my boyfriend in college at the time, and in his field because I thought, well, you know, I'm an English and you know, uh, comparative literature major. I'll take this social science class. So I sat there and took notes, and he thought, oh, this class is boring, and he didn't even come to class half the time. I ended up getting an A in the class. He got a C, and imagine what he thought. Uh, (laughs) He put down the professor. He said, oh, well, you know, he was such a rotten professor. No one could do well in that class, and I got an A, and oh, dear. Anyway, um, yes, uh, sometimes a person's ego (laughs) blocks their ability to recognize the good in, you know, someone that they care about. And yep. that's too bad. Uh, and we need to recognize that, though, instead yep. of feeling bad. If we're, if we're doing really well and somebody, you know, gives us a sour look, um, it, it has nothing to do with us. It's just that they can't handle it. Yeah. Well, I, I, when I heard he got remarried, I, I, I sent him a message and said, well, I can be happy for you. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Enough said. Yeah. 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 Um, Being happy for somebody else doesn't 
in any way take away from our happiness. You know? I didn't think so either, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's research now by this psychologist, Barbara Fredrickson. I think she's at North Carolina. And she has this book called Love 2.0, which sounds provocative. But, yeah, it sounds like something that would be on your show. She said that we can we exchange micro moments of love, and it doesn't have to be romantic love. It's just recognizing somebody right. else, looking them in the eyes, and just wishing them well. You know, whether we say something or just connect with them or say congratulations, that's great. Um, right. We both feel energized by that little interaction. You know, right. and she said that that we evolved as a, as a species apparently to do that, and we need it in order to be really healthy and whole to recognize the good in each other. I think a lot of times it's just showing human compassion for another person, especially somebody that that has been important to you in your life at some point. I don't get how people treat other people sometimes, but oh. yeah. Well, the thing is. Uh, giving that, showing compassion, showing caring, you know, showing uh, just a sense of positive connection, it doesn't have to take very long. And it is actually as good for the giver as it is for the receiver. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it, it, and positivity is contagious. So that if, you know, you feel better the rest of the day and so does the other person, hey, that's great. <laughs> Well, it's good to have reasons to be happy. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good to laugh. I mean, come on, people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, laughing, again, that's uh, that's another strength that some people have a really good sense of humor and people love to be around them, as long as their humor isn't mean-spirited because yeah. it, just, it opens us up and uh, opens us up to, to more joy. Yeah, I was thinking laughing with people, not at, at people, is, is yeah. better. <laughs> laughing, laughing with, uh, you bet. I interviewed Norman Cousins years ago at UCLA Medical Center where he had, okay, he was a writer in New York. He was editor of the Saturday Review, but he got this supposedly incurable disease, uh, you know, ankylosing spondylitis, it was called, and, wow. which would mean that he would he would lose all sense of, he wouldn't be able to move. You know, his spine would freeze. Right. And they said, the doctor said, there's, well, there's nothing we can do. So he said, well, he thought that maybe humor would help. So he had all these old Groucho Marx movies come to his, his hospital room, and he realized that if he laughed, his pain went away, and it actually increased his vital signs. But it caused so much commotion in the hospital that they said, well, you'll have to leave. Everybody would come into Cousin's room and they were all laughing. You're not supposed to have fun in a hospital. So he checked himself into the hotel across the street where the food was better anyway. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He actually recovered completely from this supposedly incurable illness. Interesting. And, and, you know, with laughter uh, because it activated his immune system. Right. UCLA Medical Center said... We need to have him on staff to, to share these insights with our medical students because, again, laughter is really, really healthy. And uh, joy is really, really healthy. And, and people, to segue back here, when people find their callings, they're filled with joy, right. which, again, is contagious and spreads more positivity to, to the world. 
Interesting. It's not only for ourselves when we find our calling, you know, and love ourselves enough to commit to what brings us joy and meaning, but when we we are practicing our calling, we actually share our joy with others and increase the positivity around us. So it's very altruistic. It's uh, it's good for uh, for the world as well as for the individual. Right. Okay, so now we've we've shared all these wonderful reasons why people should find their calling. Okay, mm-hmm. so what keeps people from what what keeps them from following their calling and living their truth? Why why would they not do this? I I personally can't imagine not following your calling and finding living your truth. But what what would keep people from doing that? Okay, well. <laughs> I did not write my book about people who did not find their calling, but let me, I think a lot of it's habit that a lot of people get in a rut. Right. And they keep doing the same thing over and over, you know, Monday through Friday, go to work, weekends, you know, celebrate and, you know, sometimes go out drinking and then Monday do it all over again. And the years go by and they're stuck. And, okay, so habit. Uh, then some of my students I've observed will take a job. They take the first job they can get out of college. And then 20 years later, they think, you know, I'm not happy. <laughs> they have a midlife crisis. Right. Because they've been stuck in a habit. They've gotten a job. They've, they've decided they need a new car, which they buy, and they have to make their car payments, so they have to keep the job. They then get married. They, they uh, have then family members to support, so they keep the job, and they get stuck in a rut, I think. So one of it is, is, is habit and a rut. Another is lack of courage. Right, right. I think it scary to some people to think of doing something different, even if it's something different good, because it, right. it unsettles their world. You know, they're, they're, they've gotten themselves into a comfort zone. And right. when we're comfortable, we don't want to move. Right. That's what I was thinking. I was thinking, like, fear, fear of the unknown. You know, I'm, yep. I, I, may, I may not be happy, but this is familiar. Mm-hmm. And, and what you're talking about is unfamiliar. I'd rather stay where I am, even if I'm not happy. Yep. Fear of the unknown is huge. I think, yeah. though, that we can counter that by saying, look, you don't have to get up and run 26 miles tomorrow morning to do a marathon. You can take one step at a time, right. one little step. If you're interested, you know, and, and you'd like to pursue some interest, whether it's your calling or just something that brings your life greater joy and meaning, what's one little step that you can take, one baby step that's not that threatening? Because, right. you know, because otherwise they won't do anything because it's too scary. So maybe right. just sign up for a class at the local community center. And if you don't like it, you can quit going. It's no big deal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So I think it's important to to look at what, uh, then there are the people in our lives, (laughs) which we've talked about, who are threatened. Right. And I give a lot of my personal examples on here. 
And I, I don't do it to toot my own horn. I don't do it for anything like that. I, I give it to help the listeners to understand. I'm, I'm not just throwing ideas out there. I'm doing this because I'm, I'm living this. I'm, I'm doing that to share that, you know, I've, I've done the hard work, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not just throwing things out there just because, because I think it sounds good. I, I've actually done. I'm, I'm sharing things that I've done because I know it works. You know, it's. And 99.9% of the guests I bring on, they've done the hard work, and they know it works. So we're sharing our personal stories and saying, you know what, I've been where a lot of the listeners are right now, and I really, really want to help you. If you want to make a change and you're to the point where you want to see something and you want to do something different, this is an example of something I know works. And if you want to make a change, this is something that will do it for you. That's what we're trying to share. You bet. And uh, if people are interested in just sort of discovering, beginning this process, <clears throat> they can take a free survey, uh, uh, which I'm not selling this. This is developed by positive psychologists. It's called the VIA Strength Survey, and it's at www.v, as in Victor, I-A, and the character, VIA character, all one word, dot org. And what this is is uh, there are 24 character strengths that are supposedly common to all humanity. The positive psychologists took years to do the research on this with all the different cultures of the world reading back through history and looking at you know, some of the earliest historical texts and artifacts. And you'd find out, you take this little survey, it takes about 10 to 15 minutes, and uh, it's free, and you can find out what your top five strengths are. And studies have shown that just using those strengths on a regular basis will bring our lives greater happiness and vitality and will begin to define greater meaning. So that's one little step which doesn't cost anything and which doesn't even take very long. And it's, it's part of learning to know who we are, which I think is part of the point of living on this planet is to know who we are and to know what we can give to others. Very true. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to include that link on the page with all the information about the show. And what I'm also going to do on there is include um, your links to your websites for people so they can get more information about you. And, of course, a link where they can get a copy of your book because the book has much, much more information and would help people that want more information if they want to even take the first couple of steps to learn more about what their their calling in their life might be. How about that? Sounds great, yes. Because I've taken a look at just the introduction of the book, and I just think it's incredibly fascinating. So I, I think I know what my calling is, but I still want to take a look. <laughs> so. I think as long as we're alive, we're, we're in discovery, and that that's Definitely. part of the joy of living. Definitely. Well, like I said, it's, I, I think people should take a look at this. Even like I said, even if you're happy, I think you should take a look and just kind of, even if you're just kind of a little bit restless, just just take a look because there's cool stuff in here. I am very happy we got to talk about all this today. So I am glad you came back. And anytime you want to come back and talk about something else, you just let me know. Thank you. It has been a great pleasure, as always, to connect with you. Awesome. Well, listeners, I hope that you had a very good time and got good information out of this. And if you want to listen again or if you'd like to share it with friends of yours or get the links for any of the information, including the, the 
character test to see what your strength is, which I'm going to go do right now, and see what mine is, you can go to my website at www.readyforloveradio.com slash truecalling to get more information. And the archive will be there right after the show airs. So, Diane, thank you so much for being with me today. And listeners, I'll be with you next time on Ready for Love Radio.